2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: Thanks very much, Scott. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Dominic Chew, and for Kelly Evans today, and here's what's ahead on the show. Stocks are lower, but oil and gold are both higher as Israel's conflict with Hamas enters its third day. We'll discuss what the unrest means for the region and for energy prices and whether now is the time to move into safety trades. Also, activist investor Nelson Peltz reigniting his proxy fight with Disney. Tryon, now one of the company's largest shareholders, and Peltz is planning to push for multiple board seats this time around. What it means for both Disney and its CEO, Bob Iger. Plus, KeyBank seeing a turnaround opportunity in one beaten down sector. Why investors should, quote, close their eyes and just buy utilities, that is coming up. But first, let's dig a little deeper and further into today's market action. As you can see, it's generally negative, but we did see a little bit of slight positivity at one point today. The Dow Industrial is currently down one-tenth of one percent, 35 points. That's well off the session lows. The S&P 500, 4303, down about five points, one-tenth of one percent. At one point today, we were actually up five points for the S&P, down 25 roughly at the lows. So you can see, again, tilting towards the upper end of the intraday trading range. The NASDAQ composite, the laggard today, down one-third of 1%, one 13,383 for the composite trade. The unrest in the Middle East right now is carrying through to many key parts of the market. A couple in particular are standing out to the upside. Crude oil prices, given all the unrest, possible supply concerns in the Middle East, that's leading to upside moves for oil and gas companies like Halliburton and Marathon Oil. You can see they're north of 5%, two of the best performing stocks in the S&P. Meanwhile, Northrop Grumman and L3 Harris Technologies, two defense contractors, those are very much in focus right now given the unrest and what what it could mean for potential defense and armament spending. So Northrop Grumman shares up 10.5%, L3 Harris up 9%. And then one thing to keep a close eye on, Arm Holdings on the computer chip side of things, recent IPO, very hot one, it reached about $69 per share intraday right after its $51 IPO price and debut. It is now down one third of 1% today. $53.92, a slate of Wall Street firms all initiating coverage on arm holdings today. J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Mizuho, Jeffries, everybody else out there initiating with pretty much a buy rating. We'll have much more on that story, by the way, later on in Tech Check. Now let's turn to the war in Israel, entering now its third day. NBC's Kelly Kobiella is in Tel Aviv with the latest here. Kelly, what exactly can you tell us about where the tensions currently stand out there in Israel?
4: Well, we're expecting to hear from the prime minister shortly, sometime at the top of the hour, according to his office. Uh, letting us know just about an hour ago that he was going to speak. In the meantime, his office has released a statement strongly denying these reports that Egypt had warned Israel uh, that there was some sort of attack in the works days ago and that that warning was effectively ignored. In the statement, uh, the office calls it absolutely false, saying that no message in advance has arrived from Egypt, and the prime minister had neither spoken nor met with the head of Egyptian intelligence since the formation of his government. So a very strong pushback uh, to those reports that the government, in fact, did have The Israeli government is saying not so. Meantime, the IDF, the the Israeli military, says that they're intensifying their counteroffensive against Gaza at this hour. They say that between Saturday and Monday they uh, struck about 1,200 targets. They say they've stepped that up. They've doubled that uh, just today. They say that they're hitting uh, weapon storage, manufacturing sites, command and control centers, and rocket launchers inside Gaza. But keeping in mind, this is an incredibly densely packed urban area with 2.3 million people. The vast majority are very, a lot of them are civilians. There are women and children inside Gaza. There Potentially, if you uh, believe the numbers put forward by uh, some Palestinian militants inside Gaza, potentially 130 hostages in that territory as well. The United Nations says that uh, power has been cut off. There could be food and medicine shortages to come if, in fact, Israel does maintain this siege on Gaza, which they have promised to do. Don.
3: All right. Thank you very much, Kelly Kobaya, uh, for that. And please stay safe out there in, in Tel Aviv. And by the way, NBC's coverage of the war in Israel continues with Lester Holt tonight anchoring a special edition of NBC Nightly News live from Tel Aviv. That's tonight at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time right here on NBC Networks. Plus, we also have West Texas Intermediate and Brute crude oil prices, Brent crude prices climbing nearly 4 percent today. The Eck Vectors oil ETF, the ticker OIH, that's the oil services ticker, on track for its best day since July 7th, with all holdings up at least 2% in the fund. So, joining me now to discuss the conflict's impact on the energy markets overall is CNBC contributor Halima Croft. She's global head of commodity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Alongside with Bob McNally, RapidN Energy Group's founder, he also served as the top international and domestic energy advisor for President George W. Bush. Thank you both for being here with us. Halima, we'll start with you. From a big picture perspective, uh, this caught a lot of people off guard. There's no doubt about it. Just how impactful could it be for the geopolitical stability in the region? Is this something that can be quelled rather quickly Or could we be talking about this for days or weeks from now?
0: I mean, I certainly think days and weeks from now is in the offing. I mean, right now, the question is, will we see a ground operation from Israel inside Gaza? And that's going to be a very difficult operation. Some are comparing it to the U.S. operations in places like Fallujah. The bigger question for markets is going to be, what was the role of Iran? in this attack. Because if there is evidence that backs up the Wall Street Journal reporting that Iran coordinated this attack, there's going to probably be a significant response from Israel. And the question is, what does the United States do? So a lot is hinging on what type of support Iran gave to Hamas beyond what we know about weapons and money. Were they coordinating this? Uh,
3: Halima, if you don't mind, could I follow up on that? This is there have been folks out there, analysts who've talked about this relationship between Israel and the rest of the Middle East, ex-Iran, Iran, Iran, not Middle East per se. It's about the relationship with Saudi, all of the other Gulf states, and whether or not this was something that was meant to derail some of the efforts being made to stabilize and and improve diplomatic relations between Israel and other Gulf area states vis-a-vis Iran. Is there anything in your mind that could go that route
0: of course i mean certainly an objective of hamas would be to derail the normalization talks that were going on with saudi arabia and i think they have essentially accomplished that i mean it's hard to see how normalization talks with saudi arabia can proceed on a parallel track to a very ferocious israeli counteroffensive in gaza
3: okay bob there's been very much a specific response in energy markets right now over the course of the last several decades oil prices have been volatile, but generally speaking, it's been a short-term event. Is there anything that suggests in your mind this could be longer term than what we've seen in the past?
5: Yes, certainly. Um, So what's very different than the periodical uh, flare-ups between Gaza and Israel, or even the second Lebanon war, the broader incursions, is this is sort of the equivalent of the 73 war and the 48 War of Independence. We're at a new level, and the violence is gonna be at a new level. And the real issue, as Halima said, is will this expand to Iran? If it doesn't, for oil markets, it's likely to be more of a ripple. Uh, Israel, There's not a lot of oil and gas involved right in Israel and Gaza proper. If it spreads to Iran and the Gulf, it's 40% of global crude oil exports, 18 percent of global refined products exports. Qatar, the world's largest LNG exporter, is inside the Gulf in that region. Then instead of a ripple, it becomes a tidal wave. So the key question, there's no question the level of violence is going to escalate. I believe Israel will invade Gaza, and we will see a prolonged war unlike we've seen in many decades in the Middle East. The question is does Iran get involved? Does Israel have evidence of Iranian complicity? Does Hezbollah and Lebanon with 130,000 rockets join, uh, join the attack? Those are the types of things we're looking for to see if this becomes more of a tidal wave for markets rather than a whip ripple.
3: Bob, in your mind, do you see a situation evolving where the world will have to turn towards different supply routes, make adjustments, audibles, if you will, with, with, with how they supply their energy, given what's happening or what could happen with supply chains that are very centric to that Middle Eastern area, if hypothetically, as you point out, this spreads beyond just what happens within Israel, Lebanon, and the Gaza-Egypt
5: area? I think that's entirely possible for some period of time. You know, in some ways, the Arabian Gulf is, not, is just not big enough for Iran and the West, for the U.S., the Gulf Arab producers, Israel. We're, uh, we're antagonistic. We're going after each other. Uh, there was a near miss in September 2019 when Iran attacked the Saudi Cake facility. We saw the largest open in one day in the crude markets. We've had a lot of near misses, but we're getting closer and closer to a real conflict between, let's face it, Iran, which is behind all of this, and the West, Arab Gulf producers, Israel, the United States. And were there to be a broader military conflict in that region, given the importance of the facilities in the region, the uh, vulnerability of the Strait of Hormuz, um, I think we may have a period of time when the world has to look elsewhere uh, for its energy and realize there really aren't many other places like the Middle East. It's still the vital supply base for the world's energy.
3: And Halima, to to cap this conversation off, because it is a complex one, President Biden and this administration have spoken very forcefully about the ties that the U.S. has to Israel, the support that we will offer to Israel. What exactly does it look like for the U.S. diplomatic route and even the military assistance route in the coming weeks if this war were to expand beyond what it is right now?
0: I mean, if this expands to Iran, if Israel comes out and says, we have the smoking gun. If that meeting did take place in Lebanon that's being alleged in the Wall Street Journal, and the Israelis turn to the United States and say, are you with us? Are you basically against us? I think it would be very hard for the United States if Israel comes up with that evidence for the United States to say, we will not back you. And I would say at a minimum... President Biden is going to come under enormous pressure in this environment to basically end the go-soft approach on Iran sanctions. We have seen a significant increase in Iranian oil exports on the market. We have basically not enforced the congressional sanctions. I do think there's going to be an effort to tighten those sanctions. So I think we will see less Iranian barrels on the market, irrespective of whether we have some type of military engagement with Iran.
3: All right. Halima Croft, Bob McNally, thank you both very much for your thoughts. We appreciate it. All right. Stocks are taking a leg lower as the fighting between Israel and Hamas continues. But the major averages are now well off their lows of the session. But the dollar index, gold prices, silver prices are all higher. And one of our next guests was already calling for investors to start getting more defensive in nature. Joining me now is Katerina Simonetti, Senior Vice President and Private Wealth Advisor at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Uh, Katerina, thank you very much for being here with us. Uh, this is it's hard to be balanced in this kind of time because the conflict and the war is so damaging and it's so negative. However, we don't want to inflame situations so much where we think the world is going to end. How are investors tackling this so-called safety trade, if you will? And is it worthwhile for them to look further into it?
6: Well, Dom, uh, geopolitics is always a risk for investors and this risk, Has escalated with the attack on uh, Israel uh, over the last couple of days, and we might see the volatility in the stock markets, we might see volatility in the oil uh, markets, and while investors are figuring out exactly how to handle these risks, we're already seeing uptick in the bond market as a flight to safety. And this is a reminder to us that geopolitical risks as unpredictable as they might be you know, we need to prepare for them. We need to think ahead and position our portfolios defensively. And this is a, definitely a case for diversification and protection of the portfolios. Now, good thing is that we do have a benefit of the high interest rate environment. So for investors that do feel extremely uncomfortable about this market, you know, one of the short-term solutions over the next 12 months would be cash, would be fixed income, would be private credit, because they can actually get significant yields in those areas. But of course, we don't want to confuse the short-term solution with the long-term portfolio positioning, you know, as we have to think long-term, you know, and make sure that we are taking advantage of the some of the opportunities that this market presents.
3: Okay, Katerina, I also want to welcome in Bleakley Group's Peter Bookvar. He's here on set with us right now uh, to talk a little bit more and add his insights as well. Peter, This is a scenario right now where, as Katarina points out, the rising rate environment has created a very different level of bond prices, especially for U.S. treasuries, which are still viewed as the safe haven of choice for many people in times of real stress. Is this, though, a time where that safety trade does present more attractively, given the fact that 10-year note yields are pushing that 4.5% to 5% realm?
7: I think temporarily. Uh, bonds certainly have gotten oversold over the past month, Treasuries, uh, longer-term Treasuries, specifying. So there was a reason to get a bounce in price and a dip in yields. And while the cash market's not trading today, you're seeing the futures uh, Treasury market rally, so you should see a, a decline in yields. But it's how sustainable is the question. I think short-term Treasuries, because the Fed has basically done raising interest rates, well, that's the real safe haven because I think you've re- you've taken away the risk of short-term interest rates continuing to rise. It's the longer-end yield curve that I think is part of the yield curve that I think is more at risk to see, notwithstanding a short-term rally in bonds, but a longer-term sell-off in Treasuries that gets even higher yields potentially.
3: Peter, this is a scenario right now where rising oil prices directly tied to what's happening in Israel and Gaza is coming at a tough time for the American consumer, inflationary threats were already there. People have already been feeling it for a while. Is this a scenario where the U.S. consumer is going to get hurt even more entering that all important shopping season that's critical for the American economy as well?
7: So it's definitely going to potentially extend out the inflation squeeze that they've been under. Over the last three years, CPI is up almost 20%. And just when we thought we were gonna get some relief, With the slowdown in the rate of change, this persistently high oil price uh, is going to complicate that factor, not just for the consumer, but certainly for the Fed in running monetary policy. We talk about higher for longer interest rates. I think we're learning over the weekend we're going to have higher for longer energy prices as well with the risk of much higher prices relative to the potential downside.
3: And, Katerina, from an investment standpoint, you talked about the safety trade before. Investing or buying bonds, whether they be treasury variety, investment grade corporate, high yield corporate, it's different than investing in precious metals, right? Because bonds spin off income. Gold does not. You hold it because you just hope it goes up in price. What's the strategy? What kind of safety trade is the most attractive to you right now?
6: Well, Dom, absolutely. And there are two sides to this question. You know, one, are existing fixed income portfolios and investors actually are seeing declines in values of their treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, a high yield held up, you know, significantly better than that. You know, so our recommendation there would be to consider tax loss harvesting and taking advantage, you know, of this current environment. But also the other side of this trade is the fact that we are at historic high interest rate environment. And at this point, buying treasuries, buying specifically investment-grade corporates, would allow investors to extend the duration of the rates and position themselves competitively in connection with their equity portfolios, you know, so if we look at the defensive place both on the equity side and on the fixed income side together, this will allow allow the longevity and also defensiveness of the portfolio, you know, in this current volatility, which is extremely important.
3: And Peter, before we let you go, quick last word to you. Are bonds attractive right now?
6: To me,
7: the defensive trade is turning out to be commodities. It's owning gold, it's owning energy. It's owning copper. It's owning agriculture. That's proving to be the real defense.
3: Okay. Peter Buchfar, Katerina Simonetti, thank you both very much. We appreciate it. All right, coming up on the show, China responding to the war in Israel with a call to end the hostilities. We'll look at the role they could play in the ongoing tensions and what investors need to watch for as the situation unfolds in the Middle East. But first, activist investor Nelson Peltz is reigniting a potential proxy fight over at Disney. You've got those details coming up next with the stock getting a decent bounce today, up one and a half percent, though still near a nine year low. The exchange is back after this break.
8: This is The Exchange on CNBC. CNBC.
3: near session highs right now. An FOMC voting member is speaking out about the economy right now at a recent event here. Steve Leisman has all the details. What can you tell us, Steve?
1: Not just any voting member, uh, Dominic. It's uh, Phil Jefferson, who is the new vice chair of the Federal Reserve uh, Board of Governors. He says financial conditions have tightened further. He says real long-term yields have risen significantly. And he will take financial market developments like these into account, along with the incoming economic data, when he figures out what policy is. The upward movement in yields, he says, could reflect the view the economy is stronger, uh, but that also reflect changing attitudes towards risk and towards uh, uh, the uncertainty That's out there. So he's not really telling you exactly how he would fall with these higher yields. He says the Fed is in a position to proceed carefully, and the Fed also is in a quote, sensitive period of risk management, which means they're watching this stuff very closely. Too soon to say, he says, we've tightened enough, particularly tentative, he says, to upside risk to inflation. And the possibility that inflation expectations become unanchored, not saying that's going to happen, just say he's watching it more broadly or specifically on inflation. He says, while recent inflation data has been encouraging it remains too high, he does see a path to lower inflation without a big increase in the unemployment rate. He sees inflation moderating further as a result of the labor market coming into better balance core non-housing services he says have yet to show a significant slowdown that's that area that fed chair jay powell is watching very closely so far the, he says the economy has been resilient and then he goes on to talk about uh, downside economic risk which includes slowdowns in foreign economic growth he singles out china and europe as two areas he's watching very closely he expects further gradual easing in the labor market conditions despite, he says, that very high job number we got last Friday. He's aware, though, of more corporate refinancing that could create further tightening in policy. Maybe not quite as outright dovish as Lori Logan was, but remember, Lori Logan, uh, the Dallas Fed president earlier this morning, gave us two sides, Dom. She gave us the side about, hey, um, uh, higher yields may mean the Fed doesn't have to tighten further, but it could also mean a longer uh, neutral rate, a higher neutral rate. Steve,
3: Steve, speaking of the Fed, the odds of a rate hike at the final two Fed meetings of the year have fallen rather notably over the course of the last few days here, especially in light of what's happening with geopolitical tensions in the Middle East. Can you take us through that dynamic right now, the odds and probabilities of what the Fed may or may not do at November to the balance of the year?
1: All that is 100 percent accurate, Dom. I think we went into this uh, day here or let's say we left Friday after that strong jobs report with about a 30 percent probability of a rate hike in November. That has halved today down to 14 percent. And then let's say we're up near 45, 46 percent for December. We're now um, I'll do the math for you oh call it 27 28%. So just a 1 in 3 chance. And Let me just double check here that that no it did not push ahead to next year at all. And then when I look further down the road, you know, they're starting to maybe bake in Dominic a cut in May. And let me just explain the context here where that mar- where the market prices in the first cut has moved from May to June. On hawkish days it's July. The mid-range is June. Today, call it a dovish day because of the factors you put out. Both the Fed speak about the idea of yields being higher and the geopolitical situation, the awful Hamas terrorist attack in Israel. uh, That moves uh, some of the thinking. Not quite odds-on bet, but an even bet that that first rate cut happens in May, Dom.
3: All right. Steve Leisman, thank you very much for the update there. We appreciate it. All right, now let's move to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Tyler. Dominic,
8: thank you very much. And uh, here is your CNBC News update at this hour, an update now on the death toll and injuries sustained in the war between Israel and Hamas. According to officials in the region, at least 700 Israelis have been killed and more than 2,100 others injured. At least 560 Palestinians have died, with nearly 3,000 injured so far in Israel's response to those attacks. According to the State Department, nine Americans have also been killed. Special counsel Jack Smith has filed opposition to former President Trump's latest attempt to postpone the classified documents case in Florida until after the election. Trump's lawyers filed the request last week, citing the speed in which the special counsel is turning over discovery and issues relating to the review of classified information. Smith called those claims unfounded. And it's official, Robert Kennedy Jr. is no longer running for president as a Democrat. He announced in the last hour that because of what he called corruption in the leadership of both parties, he will now run as an independent. Dom, back to you. All right, Tyler Matheson, thank you very much for the news update there. Coming up on the show, Senate Majority
3: Leader Chuck Schumer is leading the first congressional visit to China since 2019. We'll look at what's on the agenda and what it means for U.S.-China relations coming up next with Crane Share's chief investment officer. We'll be right back. near session highs right now. An FOMC voting member is speaking out about the economy right now at a recent event here. Steve Leisman has all the details. What can you tell us, Steve?
1: Not just any voting member, uh, Dominic. It's uh, Phil Jefferson, who is the new vice chair of the Federal Reserve uh, Board of Governors. He says financial conditions have tightened further. He says real long-term yields have risen significantly. And he will take financial market developments like these into account along with the incoming economic data when he figures out what policy is. The upward movement in yields, he says, could reflect the view the economy is stronger, uh, but that also reflect changing attitudes towards risk and towards uh, uh, the uncertainty that's out there. So he's not really telling you exactly how he would fall with these higher yields. He says the Fed is in a position to proceed carefully, and the Fed also is in a quote, sensitive period of risk management, which means they're watching this stuff very closely. Too soon to say, he says, we've tightened enough, particularly tentative, he says, to upside risk to inflation. And the possibility that inflation expectations become unanchored, not saying that's going to happen, just say he's watching it more broadly or specifically on inflation. He says, while recent inflation data has been encouraging it remains too high, he does see a path to lower inflation without a big increase in the unemployment rate. He sees inflation moderating further as a result of the labor market coming into better balance. Core non-housing services, he says, have yet to show a significant slowdown. That's that area that Fed Chair Jay Powell is watching very closely. So far, he says the economy has been resilient. And then he goes on to talk about uh, downside economic risk, which includes slowdowns in foreign economic growth. He singles out China and Europe as two areas he's watching very closely. He expects further gradual easing in the labor market conditions despite, he says, that very high job number we got last Friday. He's aware, though, of more corporate refinancing that could create a further tightening in policy. Maybe not quite as outright dovish as Lori Logan was, but remember, Lori Logan, uh, the Dallas Fed president earlier this morning, gave us two sides, Dom. Um, she gave us the side about, hey, um, uh, higher yields may, may mean the Fed doesn't have to tighten further, but it could also mean a longer uh, neutral rate, a higher neutral rate. Steve,
3: Steve, speaking of the Fed, the odds of a rate hike at the final two Fed meetings of the year have fallen rather notably over the course of the last few days here, especially in light of what's happening with geopolitical tensions in the Middle East. Can you take us through that dynamic right now, the odds and probabilities of what the Fed may or may not do at November to the balance of the
1: year? All that is 100% accurate, Dom. I think we went into this uh, day here, or let's say we left Friday after that strong jobs report with about a 30% probability of a rate hike in November. That has halved today, down to 14%. And then let's say we're up near 45, 46% for December. We're now, um, I'll do the math for you, Oh, call it 27, 28%. So just a 1 in 3 chance. And let me just double check here that that no, it did not push ahead to next year at all. And then when I look further down the road, you know, they're starting to maybe bake in Dominic a cut in May. And let me just explain the context here where that mar- where the market prices in the first cut has moved from May to June. On hawkish days it's July. The mid-range is June. Today, call it a dovish day because of the factors you put out. Both the Fed speak about the idea of yields being higher and the geopolitical situation, the awful Hamas terrorist attack in Israel. uh, That moves uh, some of the thinking. Not quite odds-on bet, but an even bet that that first rate cut happens in May, Dom.
3: All right. Steve Leisman, thank you very much for the update there. We appreciate it. All right, now let's move to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Good afternoon, Tyler.
8: Dominic, thank you very much. And uh, here is your CNBC News update at this hour, an update now on the death toll and injuries sustained in the war between Israel and Hamas. According to officials in the region, at least 700 Israelis have been killed and more than 2,100 others injured. At least 560 Palestinians have died, with nearly 3,000 injured so far in Israel's response to those attacks. According to the State Department, nine Americans have also been killed. Special counsel Jack Smith has filed opposition to former President Trump's latest attempt to postpone the classified documents case in Florida until after the election. Trump's lawyers filed the request last week, citing the speed in which the special counsel is turning over discovery and issues relating to the review of classified information. Smith called those claims unfounded. And it's official, Robert Kennedy Jr. is no longer running for president as a Democrat. He announced in the last hour that because of what he called corruption in the leadership of both parties, he will now run as an independent. Dom, back to you. All right,
3: Tyler Matheson, thank you very much for the news update there. Coming up on the show, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is leading the first congressional visit to China since 2019. We'll look at what's on the agenda and what it means for U.S.-China relations coming up next with Crane Share's chief investment officer. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the exchange chinese president xi jinping meeting with a bipartisan u.s delegation today including senate majority leader chuck schumer in an attempt to stabilize ties between the u.s and china the meeting taking place after china reopened from its golden week holiday and spending during that week came in strong but real estate sales remained weak and speaking of real estate Evergrande debt holders releasing a statement earlier today after the developer canceled a restructuring deal late last month saying in part that the inaction will eventually likely lead to the uncontrolled collapse of this group. So joining me now to discuss this complicated dynamic is Brendan Ahern, the chief investment officer at CraneShares. Uh, Brendan, it's always great to get your thoughts on what's happening with China. This is a very complicated story with the economy there, trying to emerge from COVID and get back to normal while still battling a real estate crisis. How exactly are things shaping up for that Chinese economy And is it investable?
10: Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Dom. Uh, Certainly the economy is muddling through. It's coming back uh, post-zero COVID policy removal. It's just coming back slowly that the Chinese government's not engaged in helicopter money. They've not sent free checks to people. So the economy is coming back. It's just coming back incrementally. Supported by small incremental reforms, just, we're just not seeing the proverbial policy bazooka because they don't want to create the inflation and budget deficit like we're seeing here in the U.S.
3: There's also, Brendan, been, been points in market history over the course of the last couple of decades where when China does enact that kind of a policy, it's seen as a sign of weakness. In other words, they try to take steps to stabilize the situation by injecting liquidity, and people say, well, why are they injecting liquidity? It must be pretty bad. What what exactly is that dynamic like right now?
10: Well, I think it's about supporting the economy. It's just not necessarily overheating the economy by overstimulating that. They're willing to understand it's an economic cycle and the government is showing some proverbial patience by allowing the economy to come out of this trough. Um, It's just I think investors have a little bit of ADD, want more action faster. And that's maybe led a little bit of the disappointment. But I think it is coming back. And I don't think most people would think that K-Web actually beat the S&P 500 by almost six percentage points in Q3. Yes, it's one quarter. I'm just saying it's potentially the start of this bottoming process and maybe Chinese equities rallying further.
3: How much should investors globally uh, here in the U.S. and in Europe, other places, be concerned about Evergrande, be concerned about some of the real estate issues happening there? Uh, Is this akin, and I'm just asking hypothetically, is this akin to what the U.S. saw with its own housing crisis back in 2007 to 2010?
10: Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly the the greatest policy error by any central banker was the U.S. Federal Reserve allowing Lehman Brothers to declare bankruptcy, sending the not only the U.S. economy, but the global economy into recession had uh, terrible, terrible effect on the U.S. economy, on people's lives. And the PBOC and Chinese regulators are aware of that policy error. And they're not going to replicate it by allowing a poorly managed company send their economy into crisis. Time and again, you know, the nadir nabobs and negativity say China's about to go off a fiscal cliff. And yet China hasn't had a recession since 1993. They're not going to allow a poorly run company to send their economy into crisis. Yes, it is a problem. It's definitely a problem, but it's receiving a vast amount of attention. And they're just not, you know, it's high. It's listen, I can't definitively say everyone's not going to go bankrupt. I think it will go away I just think they have to finish all the projects that they've started and then they will pay for their sins.
3: And Brendan, uh, one last point here that the news of the day in this weekend is obviously the the tragedy that's happening in Israel, the terrorist attacks there from Hamas and everything else. Do you see China and perhaps specifically President Xi taking a more active role in that particular crisis right now, whether through diplomatic channels being more visible, uh, perhaps taking steps of their own to try to influence parties to cease the hostilities there?
10: Yeah, I think first and foremost, you know, it's just a terrible tragedy that's happened to unarmed civilians in Israel. And uh, our thoughts and prayers are with with those people uh, that many of which we call friends and for many of my colleagues, family. So uh, but I think I think China, you saw after Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer met with President Xi, along with five other senators, they actually redid their statement around what's uh, what's this tragedy that took place in Israel. They actually reissued that statement. And I think you know, China out of their own economic self-interest wanted would would want to push a path uh because of their strong economic relationships with Israel, their dependency on commodities, many of which come out of the Middle East. So so they like you know could play a bit of a role there. But uh you know, unfortunately, you know, we know that um the next you know, the next step, the consequence of what's happened in Israel, what's their response? It's, its you know, just going to be very unfortunate to see this proceed. What we know is going to occur, um, you know, unfortunately. And, you know, as many of the people in finance there are reservists, and certainly, um, you know, hopefully they stay safe as uh, this unfortunate situation plays out.
3: Of course, we're our thoughts and prayers to everybody who out there who's affected right now. Brendan Ahern with Crane Shares, thank you very much, sir. All right. Still ahead on the show. Arm scales back above. Shares are above back their IPO price of $51 a share, and the street is decidedly more bullish on the stock. It received at least 11 different initiations from Wall Street today, and all but one of them was rated a buy or some equivalent. We'll dig into that and that analysis and why analysts are so excited about Arm and why Masasone, SoftBank, what he could be up to next. And as we head to break, here's another check on the markets with stocks right now at session highs. The Dow is now 142 points to the upside. It erased a 154-point drop at one point today. The exchange will be back after this. Welcome back. Computer chipmaker Arm Holdings getting a nice reception from Wall Street today with a slew of different analysts initiating coverage at what is a buy or equivalent type rating And that's despite shares off more than 20% since their post-IPO highs. Deirdre Bosa now joins us for today's tech check. Uh, It was 51 bucks at IPO, 69 bucks at the intraday high right after it. And it's nowhere near that right now. So why the buy?
2: Right. So that pop you mentioned on that first day, its debut, that was about 25%. And as you also said, pair gains since then. I read 10 analyst reports this morning, so 10 initiations, All of them were buy, like you said, some form, either a buy or an overweight. And these came from the banks that were involved in underwriting the IPO. So they waited 25 days to publish their research. And it's interesting when you look at where the ratings stood before. Before today, there was only one buy. Now there's 14 and there's only one sell. It comes from Bernstein, which did not work on the IPO. One of the things I like to look at, Dom, is what does this mean for SoftBank, right? Because this is a company that's still 90 percent owned by SoftBank. They have the most to gain if the price goes up, these buy ratings flooding in. And, you know, I want to show you a chart. This looks at where ARM sits in the whole SoftBank world. This is a Japanese conglomerate with holdings in many different things. The blue is the Vision Fund 1 and 2. These are not very liquid because they're investments in private companies. Alibaba used to be the crown jewel, and Masasan could tap into that because it was public, it was highly liquid, to fund his venture capital push to shore up finances in times of uncertainty. You can see now that Alibaba makes up just 0.1% of SoftBank holdings. ARM is the new crown jewel. It made up 12 percent in March of 2022. 22. It now makes up 22 percent, and it's publicly traded. So theoretically, Massasan could lean on ARM, could liquidate more of his stake to do more things with SoftBank. And we know, Dom, that he has said that he is going to be going on the investment offensive. He wants to invest in more artificial intelligence companies. So it'll be interesting what happens when the lockup period expires and what Massasan and SoftBank wants to do with this stake.
3: Deirdre, what is going to be the biggest driver for Arm in the coming quarters and years? Is it AI? Is it automotive? IoT? Things like that?
2: Yeah. I mean, the whole idea why Arm has such a rich valuation compared to many others in the semiconductor space, a lot of the buy ratings, the notes, they talk about sort of the royalties that Arm gets from licensing out the IP. Um, that's very important, but it needs more of a hold in the artificial intelligence space, different end markets. Right now, its biggest end market is smartphones. This is a saturated industry. So a lot of it does rely on whether it's able to move into automotive, especially artificial intelligence and some of those other end markets.
3: All right. dear Trebosa with today's tech check on Arm Holdings. Thank you very much. We'll see you later on today. All right, still ahead on the show, KeyBank seeing the dip in utilities as a buying opportunity, but says not every name is created equal. The firm actually downgrading this particular stock in the mystery chart. More than 14% so far this month. Of the downside we we'll re- will reveal that stock and talk about some of the buys and sells behind that analyst call coming up next after the break. Welcome back to The Exchange. Utilities having a rough year so far. The Spider ETF ticker XLU down more than 18% so far. But KeyBank is seeing some buying opportunities on the pullback. In a recent note, analysts advising investors to, quote, close your eyes and buy. Upgrading three energy names like DTE, CMS, and CenterPoint to overweight. Shares of all three are down between 10 and 20%, as you can see there this year. But downgrading Nextera Energy to sector weight. That was, by the way, our mystery chart that we showed you. So joining me now is Sophie Karp, Utilities and Alternative Energy Analyst at KeyBank. Sophie, rising rates, they're a problem when utilities are supposed to be those dividend payers that compete with bonds for income. How much are rising rates a problem for the utility sector?
11: Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, no, we think that the interest rates for sure are a uh, valuation uh, problem, quote-unquote, for the utility sector in the sense that the dividend yield competes with, you know, uh, risk-free uh, yield. But uh, when we look at the valuation on the utility space, it is as cheap as it has been in well over a decade on any metric that we can see, right? We look at it uh, versus the SP 500 versus the bond yields themselves. And we honestly have not seen such a, price, such a dislocation in this sector pricing wise uh, in well over 10 years. So this is why we're confident recommending that investors uh, get into the space right now. Uh, It was overpriced without going into the year. And I was on the show in December recommending people to not get into utilities on that basis. But right now we're seeing what I think is an excellent entry point for a number of high quality names which we have upgraded.
3: Sophie, some investors have talked about this idea that higher interest rates are also problematic for certain companies with a lot of capital budgeting geared towards using debt. So if you're capital intensive, like many utilities are, and you have a lot of debt on your balance sheet that those rising rates at some point become a problem. Is that your view in this case here as well?
11: Uh, no. Simply put, no. Utilities are entitled to recovery of their cost uh, of the cost of capital uh, by law, right? And so, while there might be a lag uh, in the, in the timing of that recovery, depending on the utility and the jurisdiction, ultimately the rates will be passed on to the consumers, right? Uh, through rates uh, as utilities up, up, update their um, uh, rates to rate cases as they go along.
3: And Sophie, which stocks you, you meant? We mentioned three of them that you, that are your favorites. What's the common thread for those three?
11: So uh, given where we see the valuation for the space, right, we just recommend that investors focus on high-quality names with minimal overhangs uh, that are very attractively priced. And so this is the common theme, right? We think that CMS, DTE, a number of other stocks, Ameren, uh, Excel, Wisconsin Electric, uh, all of our buys, CenterPoint uh, in that mix are, in fact, very attractively priced clean names with minimal regulatory overhangs and no potential negative catalysts on the horizon to speak of. So we feel pretty good recommending them at this point.
3: Okay. Sophie Karp at KeyBank with the call on utilities. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. All right. Well, that does it for here on the exchange. You can see right now stocks are at session highs. The Dow is up 173 points. It was down 154 at one point today. The S&P 500 currently up one half of 1%, 23 points to the upside, 43.32 the last trade there. The Nasdaq Composite up 46 points as well, 13,480. Keep it right here. Power Lunch is coming up right after this quick break.
2: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place